When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Mick Brown joins Nate for a special two-hour episode charting the rise and fall of Phil Spector. Mick interviewed Spector in his home in 2003, just weeks before Phil killed Lana Clarkson and went on to write the definitive biography of the tortured musical genius, Tearing Down the Wall of Sound, The Rise and Fall of Phil Spector. Mick tells Nate the whole tale today. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. to let it roll. Today's guest is Mick Brown, author of Tearing Down the Wall of Sound, The Rise and Fall of Phil, Phil Spector. Mick, welcome. Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, this is, uh, I think, the definitive biography of Phil Spector, and you were lucky enough to interview him in his mansion weeks before the tragic death of Lana Clarkson. Uh, that's right. Yeah, no, I was extraordinarily fortunate. He hadn't given an interview for many, many years. Uh, and I was able to secure that interview uh, and went out to uh, Los Angeles, had an extraordinary meeting with him over the course of an afternoon. Uh, and then shortly after that, as you say, uh, came this terrible incident where he shot Lana Clarkson. Um, and, uh, and that was it, really. <laughs> uh, interestingly, what he'd said to me in the interview, uh, describing his mental state about being relatively insane and um, having demons inside him and so forth, that that very sadly became the, the, the template for, for all that was written about Phil Spector thereafter. Uh, but I have to say that the Phil Spector I met was, was very charming, very funny, and one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever had. And that's kind of the dichotomy I want to I get at a little bit uh, with Phil Spector, is the combination of this gifted individual. I mean, and almost a singularly gifted individual. This is somebody who could sing, who wrote a number one hit song and recorded it at age 18, who uh, rose dramatically through the ranks of the record industry, owned his own record company flat out by the time he was 21 and a half or so. Exactly. And Yeah, no, uh, I mean, sorry, go uh, I was going to say, no, I mean, it's extraordinary. He's an extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, Nick Cohen, a very fine uh, English writer, uh, memorably described him as the first tycoon of teen. Um, hang on, let me get that right. Sorry. Rewind. That's Tom Wolfe. Uh, it was Tom Wolfe. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, 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 you're right. Uh, Phil Spector was an extraordinary phenomenon. Uh, Tom Wolfe very memorably, memorably described him as the first tycoon of teen. Uh, and uniquely, he was a producer who was bigger than his artists. 
uh, and, and a producer who actually stamped his identity very, very much on the music, uh, irregardless of who he was recording. So, so they weren't uh, 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 Crystal's Records or Righteous Brothers Records, although, of course, those were the names of the artists on the label. They were all essentially Phil Spector Records, and, and that fingerprint was absolutely unique and indelible. Uh, so he was, he, was, he was the first producer of Superstar, really. And he has an, an pretty much an unmatched run of hits from say six, late sixty one until sixty four, had what fifteen twenty top ten hits in a row. Uh, something like that, yeah. I, I think uh, nineteen sixty three was his uh, Annus Mirabilis, uh, where he had successive hits by uh, Darling Love, uh, The Crystals. The Renettes, of course, uh, one after the other uh, by these artists. Uh, and then, of course, we have uh, the Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, uh, which I think is probably still one of the most, if not the most played record ever on pop music radio. Um, uh, River Deep, Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, he, he was a phenomenon. For me, what, what he does really is that he, he's, he, he sums up that era between the first uh, gusto blast of rock and roll in the, in the late 1950s with artists like Little Richard and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry, between that and between the arrival of the Beatles uh, and the British invasion in America in 1964, uh, and, and in that period in between, from, as you say, from, from, from the late 50s through to about 64, 65, uh, Spectre was just about the hottest thing in American pop music. And yet... By age 26, he invests everything into uh, one last monumental roll of the dice with the single with Ike and Tina Turner, River Deep Mountain High. It stiffs in the U.S., and essentially he goes into retirement at 26. Uh, that's true. And I, I, I mean, that's a very, very important record in, in, in his career, because I think by that point, uh, the feeling in the record industry was already the, the wall of sound. Uh, this unique sound that Spectre created. The feeling was that it was already growing kind of stale. Uh, and I think Spectre was aware of that talk. Uh, he was also aware of the fact uh, that, that, that he wasn't a terribly popular man in the recording industry himself. So disc jockeys were, were becoming less and less inclined to play his records. There was a lot of resentment against Phil Spectre. Um, so he really poured everything into that, into that record with Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, and, and some people would see it as the actual sort of some nation, as it were, of the wall of sound. Uh, that's not my view. My, my view is that the, the earlier Crystals records, uh, the Do Wrong Ron, uh, and certainly you've lost that you've lost that loving feeling. To me, those are, those are the actual sort of um, the, the really epic spectra productions. I, I find uh, River Deep Mountain High a little over complicated, a little over cluttered. But the fact is that it was a, it was a terrible failure in America. Uh, and there are lots of reasons that have been advanced for that. W one is that it was neither a black record nor a white record. One is, as I say, that the industry was all set to take revenge on Phil Spector. Uh, but whatever the reasons, Spector was absolutely crushed by this. And he actually took out an advertisement uh, in the American trade, uh, trade magazines. Benedict Arnold was right. Citing the, citing the great uh, traitor who sided with the British against the Americans, because the record had been a number one record in, in, in Britain. Uh, Britain always loved Phil Spector uh, and, and never lost that love for him. But in America, he'd become cold. And he effectively withdrew from the industry then for many, many years. And, and that, was the, that was the death knell of Spector's first great moment in rock and roll. And so now that we've given kind of a pocket history of his initial rise and fall, 
Let's go back and talk about his his origin. Where did Phil Spector come from? What was his family like? He was born in the Bronx in New York in uh, 1940 uh, and grew up in a working class household in, in, in the Bronx. Um, his father was uh, worked for a steel company and tragedy struck very early on in his life. Uh, his father killed himself when Phil was nine. And the family, which is to say Phil, his mother and his elder sister, Shirley, moved to Los Angeles. And I think he was very much a, a fish out of water in Los Angeles. Um, here he was, this, this small, uh, runtish looking, uh, pale, uh, not terribly prepossessing young man, uh, suddenly cast into this sort of land of the gods in, in, in L.A. with perpetual sunshine, which Spectre hated never liked sunshine, uh, wasn't interested the slightest bit in sports, wasn't interested the slightest bit in the beach. Um, and also, things weren't easy for him at home. Uh, I mean, given the fact that his father had killed himself, uh, there was a lot of anger and a lot of sadness in the family and a, a lot of rowing. And, and Phil was constantly being put upon by both his mother and his sister. So somebody described it to me as, as like a tag team in wrestling. These two would almost take it in turns picking on poor little Phil. So he was, he was the outcast very much, but, but he, had, he had this one great consoling grace, which was that he had a gift for music. And uh, he, he was bought a guitar for, 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 his, for his bar mitzvah at the age of uh, 13, uh, mastered the guitar, mastered a number of instruments, in fact, um, and, and would sit in his room. Um, I think it was Kim Foley who once described rock music as rock and roll as being uh, music for lonely people made by lonely people. And, and that very much summarized uh, Phil. He, he, he was the odd, the odd guy out sitting in his room, scanning through the radio dial, particularly falling in love with, with rhythm and blues, uh, working out on his guitar. And that guitar gave him entree in high school, he went to Fairfax High School. Uh, that guitar gave him entree there, and, and he would sit around in, in, in the schoolyard with his guitar, vamping on the popular songs of the day. So that was his kind of entree in, in, into, into the social world. And he was also, as I say, he, he, was, he was a prodigiously gifted musician. He could have been a jazz session guitarist if, if, if he'd chosen that route. But uh, as, as it was, uh, as you say, at the age of 17, 18, um, out of nowhere, he pulls this extraordinary record to know him as to love him, which becomes a number one hit. And he does it uh, under the nom de rock of the teddy bears. And so he had to assemble a little group to sing his song. Tell us a little bit about his first combo. Well, that's right. They, they were people, uh, friends that he'd recruited from school, a guy called Marshall Lieb. Uh, who, who was um, considerably taller than Phil, which is quite important here, because he rather took Phil under his wing. Uh, and when Big Mouth would get him in trouble, Marshall Lee would often step in and, uh, and, and keep, cool things down. Uh, and, and, and a girl called Annette Kleinbard. And Phil had written a couple of songs uh, and put together this group and went down to Gold Star, uh, borrowed some money, some from his mother, some from Annette Kleinbard, uh, managed to rustle up the money to, to, uh, to, to, to pay for a, a studio session and went in and, and uh, arranged the record himself. They performed the record themselves. Uh, and that was it. And the, the interesting thing about this record, uh, of course, it's called To Know Him Is To Love Him. Uh, the title was actually taken from the, from the gravestone of his father, which was To Know Him Was To Love Him. So while to the record-buying public, this appeared to be 
a very innocent, innocent, plangent uh, love song. Uh, for Phil, it was a, a memorial to his father, which made it even more, uh, even more poignant in a way. But that record, it was originally a B-side, uh, and the, B, the, the, the original A-side, uh, uh, Don't You Worry My Little Pet, uh, nobody picked up on that. But, but happily, uh, uh, after about two or three months, a disc jockey flipped it over. Uh, and started playing uh, to know him as to love him, and and it came out of the gate like a greyhound, and, and just raced to the top of the American charts. So at the age of eighteen, he was the producer, performer, singer, master, and of a number one record. And let's hear a snippet from "To Know Him Is to Love Him." the famous bridge to know him is to know him is to love him uh by the teddy bears and phil specter apparently copped that bridge from wagner uh, <laughs> well that was what that was what annette kleinbard uh, told me uh yes uh, and she said she, she could never stand wagner so she wouldn't have known the difference but he you know he, he had a pretty extensive musical education uh, not only at school uh i think the one teacher that he got on with at school was his music teacher uh, who, who he venerated and adored, uh, but also from friends around. One guy in particular, a very interesting man named Michael Spencer, who he was at school with, uh, who had a, whose parents had a very extensive record collection. And Phil would spend afternoons over at Michael Spencer's house, not only listening to show tunes and pop tunes and rock and roll tunes, but also listening to classical music. Uh, and fell in love with classical music, uh, particularly orchestral classical music. And, and that became a very, uh, a very significant uh, part, I think, not so much in the sound that he created, but in the sensibility that informed him, where he came to see rock and roll in the same way as classical music. I mean, he, he called the records he made Little Symphonies for the Kids. Uh, and and w- w- one of the things that makes him unique, I think, is that at that time, most people regarded rock and roll as pop music as something that was disposable, something that was ephemeral. It was a fad. It was a fashion. It'll never catch on. It'll all die out within a year or two and nobody be interested. Phil Spector saw what he was doing as art and he made these records to last. He made these records as if they were orchestral, wonderful symphonies, as if they were the very summit of classical music. He brought that sort of perfectionism, that kind of idealism and that kind of vision to his music. And that was something that really distinguished him from pretty much every other music produced in the pop field at that time and he gets quite an education as a result of having a number one hit with the teddy bears and and the main lesson he learns is that you don't want to be an artist in the music business you want to be behind the scenes that's right well in fact this was advice that had been given to him some years earlier by a, a very very fine jazz guitarist called barney kessel uh whom phil had met when he was about 15 uh, and uh, Phil idolized Barney Kessel, idolized his playing. And, and in fact, it was his sister who, who arranged for, uh, for Phil to, to meet Barney Kessel. Uh, and, and Kessel said, look, kid, you know, if you, if you really want a career, you've got to think about songwriting and you've got to think about producing. 
Um, and I think what happened with um, to know Mr. Luffy r- rather confirmed him in that. The teddy bears went out on tour. Uh, Phil didn't enjoy that in the slightest, and, and, and on one occasion got rather badly roughed up in, in, in the in the gents' lavatory after a show. Um, he wasn't a singer, really. Uh, you know, he'd always saw himself as as something bigger than that, if you like, as a as, as a producer, producer and a writer. And I also think the fact that um, he saw a, a, an absolute earned an absolute pittance from uh, to know him is to love him uh, negligible, negligible amount of money. I think that was an early lesson in the fact that uh, it's not the artists that make the money; it's the producers and it's the record labels and the publishers and the songwriters that make the money. Uh, and, and that was a lesson that he took very much to heart, and, and of course informed everything he did thereafter. And once he's learned that lesson, he immediately starts to cultivate contacts at a higher level in the music industry, starting with a guy in L.A. named Lester Sill. That's right. I mean, Lester Sill was, was, was a well-known figure uh, in the Los Angeles music business. Uh, and uh, among the artists who'd, uh, or among the, 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 the talents, I should say, who, 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 who would work with Lester, uh, were Lieber and Stoller, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. But at that point, we're, were phenomenally successful uh, songwriting and production partnership. Uh, and through Lester Sill, uh, Phil was sort of introduced to Lieber and Stoller, left Los Angeles and went off to New York, more or less as an apprentice to Lieber and Stoller. And of course, it was Lieber and Stoller who had acts like the Coasters and particularly the Drifters. And their work for the Drifters uh, was was pretty influential, really. Um, I mean, I mean, they 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 had a, a similarly kind of grand ambition for what for what pop music could be. Uh, and with the Drifters, they used string arrangements, and they also introduced this this sort of bayon beat, this kind of Latin American shuffle beat. Uh, if you listen to something like "There Goes My Baby" um, by the Drifters, uh, a, a lot of those Drifters songs have have a very sophisticated sound to them. Uh, and and they were creating that sound. Lieber and Stoller were creating that sound by using multiples of instruments, two or three guitarists, uh, with lots and lots of percussionists. And again, this was this was a lesson that, uh, that Phil uh, learned early on from them. Um, I have to say that Lieber and Stoller weren't altogether won, won over by Phil. Lieber, he described Phil as a strange dog. Uh, and and Spencer had a way of sort of unsettling people. He he, he could be uh, arrogant. I think is probably the best way of putting it. He always he always believed that in his own greatness, even when other people didn't believe in his in his greatness. Uh, he wasn't someone who showed a great deal of gratitude. Uh, he was someone who would take advantage of anything or anyone that came his way, uh, without so much as a buy your leave or or, or or a goodbye note of thanks. So he wasn't an altogether popular person, but. As time went on, um, his success, his golden touch, uh, rather overruled whatever his character failings and defects may have been. Uh, And I think that's that's exemplified, really, with with, uh, uh, Lieber and Stoller, because he uh, he approached Jerry Lieber at one point and said that he wanted to write a song with him. Now, Lieber had a songwriting partner, Mike Stoller, but Stoller was out of town. And so Lieber, in order to indulge Spectre, said, you know, OK, fair enough, let's try something. Uh, and uh, Spectre went around to Lieber's apartment and, and together they wrote Spanish Harlem, 
which was a you know an, an extraordinary hit for the for the drifters. Um, but it, uh, Phil kind of tended to take all the credit for these things, uh, and, and and you know he, he, you get the sense that he, he he was rather angling to take over from uh, from Mike Stoller, which of course Jerry Lieber wasn't going to have anything to do with. And um, and but he was a, he was a go on. Well, his he he makes the alliance with Lieber and Stoller. He plays lead guitar and some of their productions, notably and the solo and on Broadway. Yep. But he makes numerous other connections as well. He befriends Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic Records, uh, Don Kirshner of Alden Music, who and Kirshner's kind of uh, the king of the Brill Building at this point. He's he's got signed to his publishing company, Neil Sedaka and Norm Greenfield, uh, Gary Goffin and Carol King, uh, Cynthia Wheel or uh, Manuel and uh, and Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, and so exactly. he. He cultivates all these relationships. He also befriends Doc Pomus, who's uh, he and his partner Mort Schumann are signed to Hill and Range, which is Elvis's publishing company. And there's one point in the book when you tell the story of Phil bragging that he signed 100% to Lieber and Stoller, Atlantic Records, and Hill and Range all at the same time. <laughs> well, this is very this is very characteristic. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether he had signed 100 uh, percent to, to all of them all at the same time, but this is certainly what he told Michael Spencer, uh, and and it kind of has the ring of truth, you know, that, that such was his uh, self belief. Uh, but it's the kind of thing he thought he could do and get away with, you know. Everybody wants me. Okay, I'll give this guy a hundred percent. I'll give this guy a hundred percent. I'll give this guy a hundred percent. The assumption being that, that nobody was going to call him on, call him on it, uh, and that he could somehow get away with it. Um, and of course, in the end, he didn't get away with it. Uh, with Hill and Range, he 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 effectively uh, signed the Crystals at the time that uh, he was working for Hill and Range, uh, with the understanding that they were going to be uh, administered by Hill and Range. And, and he stole the group from under Hill and Range's nose and, and, and took them off to Los Angeles or took the name off to Los Angeles. The group stayed in New York, took the name off to Los Angeles uh, and, and, and recorded He's a Rebel, which was, which was his first great sort of wall of sound record, I guess. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he made a lot of friends, but he also made a lot of enemies. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that, that such was his magic touch. But even somebody like Don Kirshner, who at that point, the man with the golden ears, at that point was, was you know, probably the hottest pub- publisher in, in, in pop music in America. Uh, but he found it expedient to work with, with Phil because he knew that if he gave Phil the right songs that he would get big hits with them and, and he did but i don't think there was any great love loss between the two of them and, and let's hear a little bit of phil specter demoing spanish harlem which is the song that he co-wrote with uh, jerry lieber a red rose up in spanish harlem It is a special one, it's never seen the sun It only comes out when the moon is on the run And all the stars are gleaming It's growing in the... And that was Phil Spector singing a demo version of Spanish Harlem, which became a hit for Benny King, who had just left the Drifters. And that that's actually, you know, pretty effective and poignant performance of the song and it's interesting 
by the standards of the day, Phil was not seen as a singer. But had he come along in, say, the early 2000s, he would have, I mean, th- there were many, many emo bands with singers of, of significantly less talent. <laughs> yes. Well, standards have fallen, I think, since Phil Spector's day. Um, I, I mean, you're right. It, 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 it is affecting, but, but, but it's not Benny King. Um, and so I, I don't think at that point there would have been any suggestion that, hey, hey, let's not get Benny King recording that. Let's put out Phil's, let's put out Phil's version or, 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 or get Phil to do a, a finished recording of it. I don't think he, he, he never saw himself in that way. And, and I don't think he was ever seriously, nobody around him seriously thought that uh, they should bring Phil uh, much, much uh, time in front of a microphone. But he does. And like you said, uh quickly leapfrog through this apprentice period in the in the Brill building and, and builds bridges and burns bridges with, like we said, Atlantic Records, Hill and Range, Libra and Stoller. He also has a tenure with Liberty Records in LA and essentially gets 15, 25 grand and and, and this is in the early 60s money, so this is a huge amount of money to essentially play table hockey and wait for a demo to come across his desk that he might want to swipe for his own purposes. Yeah, well, he was he was very effective at, 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 at play, playing all the angles. Uh, he, he made he made some records for Liberty. Uh, probably the most significant thing that came out of his association with Liberty was uh, meeting a guy called Bobby Sheen, uh, who was an R and B singer working out of Los Angeles. Uh, who subsequently became uh, one of the singers on Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans, uh, which, which was a group that, that Spectre put together for Phyllis Records and, and, of course, had their first hit with Zippity Doodah. Uh, and uh, actually remained very good friends with Bobby Sheen, and, and he was very fond of Bobby Sheen, and, and Bobby Sheen, I think, was very fond of him. Um, but, I, I, you know, he was someone, as you, you you put it perfectly, you know, he'd cross a bridge and then burn it. Uh, and the Liberty thing... <sighs> I think what, 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 what happened at that point was that, that he, was, he was back in New York. Uh, he, he'd recorded um, Gene Pitney, uh, produced a, a Gene Pitney song. Uh, and Gene Pitney um, came calling with a song that he'd written called He's a Rebel. Uh, and uh, Phil heard that and very, very quickly snatched that out as, as, as quickly as he could, flew back to Los Angeles uh, and and wanted to record it with the Crystals, who, of course, were based in New York, where he'd been recording them on two or three singles before that. It's a little unclear whether the Crystals were unable to travel or unwilling to travel. In any event, Phil got on the plane back to L.A. by himself and uh, put together a a group of session singers called The Blossoms and recorded He's a Rebel and put that out under the name of the Crystals, whereas, in fact, the lead singer was, uh, was, was Darlene Wright, as she was then called Darlene Love, as she subsequently became. And in, in typical fashion for that day, and I don't think this is unique to Phil, it's the kind of thing that any producer would have done, uh, Darlene Wright was paid $3,000 for, for singing on that record. She was just paid a standard lead session fee on that and didn't see a penny more after that. Uh, but that was a huge, that was a, a huge, huge record. And that was really... 
that begins Phil's association with, um, uh, as I say, it's the, it's the first real kind of wall of sound record. It's also the beginning of this long association with Gold Star Studios, where, where all of the, it's not quite the beginning, he'd, he'd recorded there before with the Paris Sisters, but it, it, it cements his association, I should say, with Gold Star Studios. And that's where the wall of sound is really created in, in this relatively small recording studio in Los Angeles, which uh, up until then had been used primarily for, for, for demos and, and, and sessions and, and, and so forth. It wasn't a, wasn't a terribly significant recording studio in LA, uh, but it became Spectre's home. And that's where he created this wall of sound that we associate with him. And one technical aspect of Gold Star Studio that you discuss in the book that was fascinating to me is that they had a literal echo chamber. They had a small concrete room behind another room, a lightless, soundless room that they would put in a, a speaker and a microphone. So they would take the sound from the studio, play it back in this concrete box, in this echo chamber, <laughs> right. and then record it. And that was a key element in getting that enormous echo that was such a key part Very of the wall of sound. That's absolutely right. Very, very, very much so. I, I think, I think, for Phil, this this echo chamber was the was the equivalent of, a, of of an Italian chef discovering a lifetime supply of garlic. Uh, you know, he 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 couldn't get enough of this, uh, and, and and that, as you say, became very much uh, one one of the characteristics of uh, of the sound that he created. It was it's it's it, it it was very small gold stuff burned down many many years ago. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a very small uh, room. And the numbers of uh, musicians that, that Phil would use, um, going back to, 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 to the idea that, that he saw pop music as in an almost orchestral sense, he didn't have groups. He had almost kind of orchestras of musicians in there. He'd have three, four, sometimes even five guitarists sitting around in a circle, playing the same chords, strumming the chords to get this richness of sound. Then he'd bring in brass. He'd have two sometimes as many three pianists in there, all crammed in, any number of people banging a cowbell, shaking maracas. Uh, so, so you really do get this sort of this, this um, almost palette set of, of, of sound, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of sound. And then, as you say, all fed into this echo chamber so that what came out sound, sounded much, much greater than the sum of its parts in a way. Um, extraordinary rich, and for those days at least, extraordinarily rich sound. Because remember, in, in, in those days, there wasn't multi-tracking. Um, there was two track at most, going out to four track. Uh, there wasn't eight track, 16 track. If you, 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 you couldn't have one guitarist and then multi-track that one track 16 times to, to, to get that effect. You had to have 16 guitarists. You didn't have that many, of course. But, but certainly, uh, numbers, the numbers game was very, very important to, to Phil in creating that sound. And he was an absolute perfectionist. He would spend hours and hours and hours moving the position, musicians around, positioning them, moving the baffles around, moving the microphones around, doing endless retakes in order to, to reach perfection. Um, as, as, as somebody says, uh, you know, he, he would do so many retakes, retakes uh, in order to get perfection. I always hated that because it cost me money. Uh, this, this was uh, 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 Beinstock, who, who we'd worked with at, at Hill and Range. Um, and sometimes it would drive the, drive the musicians crazy. Uh, 
uh, they can see particularly the, the, the guitar players. I mean, maybe they're with bleeding fingers playing the same chord over and over and over again. Play it dumb, play it dumb. That's what Phil would say to them. He didn't want virtuoso picking. He wanted everything sublimated to this one particular sound, this idea that he had in his mind. Uh, and it all came together in, in, in gold star. And by this time, he had discovered in himself this ability to command people. He had created this larger-than-life persona. You know, he's he's put lifts under his feet and raised himself from 5'2 to 5'4 or 5'5. He's, he's beginning to wear toupees and capes and costumes. And he's discovered that he can command, you know, this army of, of gifted musicians and, and drive them to his will. And, you know, some of, like, the great bass player Carol Kay describes it as almost like a, a deliberate destruction of the musician's ego and making them rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and getting somebody like the virtuoso Barney Kessel, who had been Phil's teacher, and then having somebody like that sit down next to Glenn Campbell and Tommy Tedesco, who are both brilliant guitarists, and having them all play open chords on the eighth note. Almost, it's almost <laughs> like an act of revenge and egotism right there. And you, you talk repeatedly and have multiple quotes from people who knew him well, saying that his career in a lot of ways was driven by this anger and this revenge combined with this romanticism. I think, I think that's right. I think revenge was, was a very big factor in, in, in driving Phil Spector. The fact that, 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 that he'd always been the small put-upon little runt, the small put-upon outsider. You know, fate had dealt him the cruelest possible hand it could. You, you, your father kills himself when you're nine. You're left with a mother and sister who, who berate you and bully you and, and torment you. Uh, you go to school and people call you names. Um, I, he, he wanted revenge on the world, and, and, and music was his revenge on the world. Uh, and he couldn't have done that to those musicians, though. He couldn't have treated those musicians in that way had they not respected him. And they respected him. They respected his ability. They respected his understanding of music. And above all, they respected the way in which he respected them. He kind of venerated the musicians in, in a way that he didn't the singers. To him, the singers were pretty much interchangeable, pretty much disposable. Uh, and I think that the, the musicians were always treated better than the singers were. The musicians would always get the, the spot bonuses, the, 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 the $50 bills, the $100 spot bonus, the little gifts, the little presents, the little sweetness. Uh, the singers were left there sitting for hours and hours and hours outside the studio, curled up on a couch, sleeping, waiting for the, waiting for the musicians to go through their paces before they would be called in to, 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 to sing. Um, and if you, if you talk to those musicians, uh, and, and, as I did, to a, to a man, they all said how much they respected Phil. Um, and, 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 and what, 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 a, what a great producer and great commander uh, he was. Hal Blaine, uh, you know, probably the most legendary drummer in Los Angeles music history, absolutely adored Phil. He played on pretty much every, every uh, Phil Spector session, Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer. Uh, and, you know, Blaine's not a guy that would, uh, that would suffer falls lightly. Um, he, he adored Phil and, and he described Phil Spector sessions as like party sessions. For all the fact that he drove those musicians, he had a way also of charming them and manipulating them. He knew when to break the tension and make a joke. He knew when to start acting the fool uh, to make himself the butt of humor or more usually to make others the butt of humor in order to break whatever tension might be building up. 
I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those sessions. They must have been incredible. And let's hear a little sample of the wall of sound. This is, as you mentioned, Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans doing Zippity Doodah. Spectre's Wall of Sound, uh, a song performed by, released under the name of Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans, and Zippity Doodah, which was a, a show tune from the Walt Disney uh, Song of the South, released 20 years earlier. And the way you described the creation of the song and his choice of recording it, and the way that it's then the demo is passed around among the cognoscenti of the music business, it's, it's a real flexing of the muscles. It's almost Phil Spector saying, I'm so hot right now. My sound is so funky and so fresh. I can take this old, totally silly chestnut and turn it into the hottest <laughs> piece of wax going. Well, it's an act of complete reinvention, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 recognizable as as as, as the Disney tune, but it's uh, it's it's even more recognizable as a Phil Spector tune. Uh, it sounds like a train chugging down a tunnel and suddenly bursting out in, 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 into the sunshine. It has that that incredible clank, clank, clank kind of percussion that's going away in the background. Uh, this this eerie gospel choir singing. It's it's a total reinvention. Uh, and as you say, when people heard that for the first time, they, they, they were completely blown away by this. That's that that's the Disney song. Are you kidding me? Uh, and and it was a hit. But then Phil had a way of had a way of doing that. You know, he he would he would come out with with, with things that that nobody was expecting. Uh, there were a lot of occasions when people would say, "Are you kidding me? Uh, Did do wrong wrong? You know, you you're going to call your song Did do wrong wrong? Are you kidding me? Uh, no, he wasn't kidding, and it turns out to be another enormous hit. So there was a moment when he really did have the golden touch, uh, where, where everything every, everything Phil Spector touched turned to gold. And that was terrific for him and wonderful for him. But at the same time, in many ways, it was also destructive for him because it, it, it fed his arrogance and it fed his egotism. Uh, and, and it also fed his, his sense of uncertainty. Uh, Nino Tempo, uh, a great sax player uh, who, who, who worked with Phil a lot, um, and of course had a big hit with his sister, uh, Deep Purple, um, Nino, and, Nino and April Stevens, wasn't it? Um, I mean, he said that, uh, talks about a conversation he once had with Phil, uh, where Phil was, was, was worried, you know, I've had five, five hit records. I've had six, six, six hit records. I might not have a seventh. You know, there was always this kind of insecurity bubbling away. No matter, no matter how much success he'd had, it was never quite enough to satisfy him. There was always more revenge, if you like, to be, to be meted out to the world. And even though he's seemingly on top of the world, he's keeping a very close eye on his rivals, and one in particular, uh, Barry Gordy of Motown. Apparently, Phil was pretty fascinated with what was going on in Detroit at this time. Very much so, yeah. I mean, uh, Barry Gordy, I mean, he, 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 in a way, I think Barry Gordy created something that Phil would have liked to have created, but didn't quite have the 
didn't quite have the nous to create. Uh, if we look at what Barry Gordy did, he, he, he built a, he built a, a, a production line. He, he, he worked at uh, Ford Motors uh, on the production line, and he brought the same kind of principles to, to, to music, really. And he built this team around him of arrangers, producers, songwriters, uh, quality control meetings. Uh, he built a family, and that was something that Phil could never do. Phil, Phil would never have been able to give away uh, the credit in the way that Barry Gordy was able to do. And Barry Gordy was the man behind every Motown record. Nobody knew who Barry Gordy was. Nobody really knew who the writers and producers were. We know who Diana Ross was. We know who the Supremes were. We know who Marvin Gaye was. Um, Barry Gordy was smart enough to realize that you build artists and you build artists' careers. Barry Gordy wasn't just thinking about tomorrow's hit or the days after hit he was thinking about let's get the supremes playing at the copacabana let's get marvin Gaye performing on broadway uh his choices might not might not have always been the right ones but he was building an empire phil was always too egocentric i think to to to, to, to build that empire but certainly he looked very enviously i think at, at what barry gordy did and really admired the, the, the quality of those recordings and, and the sound that Barry Gordy got in, in, in that small studio at, uh, at, at Hitsville in, in, in Detroit, particularly the drum sound. He was completely knocked out by the drum sound and spent hours and hours and hours trying to sort of uh, replicate that in, in, in Gold Star Studios. But I don't think he had quite the... He didn't have Barry Gordy's... He had his own golden touch, Phil, but he didn't have Barry Gordy's golden and platinum touch. Barry Gordy, I would argue, is probably a, a greater record man than, 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 than Phil was. He had, a, he had a more enlarged and all-encompassing vision than Phil could ever have. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, Phil was greater than Barry Gordy, maybe as, you know, Barry Gordy wrote some great songs, Money and Do You Love Me, but he wasn't, he never wrote uh, To Know Him Is To Love Him or, or co-wrote uh, You've Lost That Love and Feel, Feeling like Phil did. He wasn't the pianist and guitar player Phil was. No. But from no, day one, yeah, he's cultivating people like Smokey Robinson and letting them blossom, Holland, Dozier, Holland, under his wing, whereas Phil has apprentices like Sonny Bono and Jack Nietzsche who go on to become very successful producers, but he, they don't do it under Phil's purview. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that I think there are people around Phil who, who, who would have felt very frustrated by that. As you say, Sonny Bono would have felt frustrated by that. There, there are other talented people uh, around him who, who, who could have been given their head uh, and, and might have gone on to, uh, to to do very well. Yeah, Phil could have turned Phil's records into, into into Los Angeles version of Motown. But but he didn't have that generosity of spirit or that um that, that kind of vision that, that, that uh, Barry Gordy had, I think. But I think you're, you're quite right that, that in certain respects, uh, as a producer, I think Phil was a, was, was a superior talent. Uh, as, as a player, he was a superior talent. Um, but he didn't have the vision. He didn't have the vision. And, and in a way, I think that's one of the things that, 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 that fatally undermined him. Because when the wall of sound began to get rather stale, as it did, uh, towards the end of 1964, 1965, when it began to get rather stale, uh, there was nowhere else for Phil to go. He 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 boxed himself into a corner, and there was nobody around him who could have who could have 
extended the sound or developed the sound or taken it in a different direction in the way that, say, Norman Whitfield was able to do with the Temptations at uh, at Motown or or Ashford and Simpson were able to do with uh, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell at at, at, at Motown. It would have been very interesting to see what would have happened had... uh, had the Crystals or Darling Love or, or indeed the Righteous Brothers uh, been given the opportunity to work under other producers, but under under Phil's purview. But that never happened. And, and let's hear a little bit from Phil's, the only album project he made in this era. And this is a very unusual recording. This is Phil Spector's version of Silent Night, which is mostly a monologue. Let's hear it. Phil Spector, Silent Night. my feelings about the album to which you have just listened an album that has been in the planning for many, many months. First, let me thank all the people who worked so hard with me in the production of this album and in my endeavor and desire to bring something new and different to the music of Christmas and to the recording industry, which is so much a part of my life. Of course, the biggest thanks goes to you for giving me the opportunity to relate my feelings of Christmas. And that was Phil Spector with the personal message that he closed his uh, famous Phil Spector's Christmas album. And this is a project that he poured everything into in the summer of 1963. Tell us a little bit about this and, and what its ultimate fate was. Um, I, Phil had always rather liked the idea of, of, of Christmas albums. Um, you know, the idea, and he liked the idea of Christmas indeed. Uh, Jewish as he was, uh, he was very enamored with the, with, the, with the notion of the quintessential American Christmas or the quintessential Anglo-American Christmas, if you like. Chestnuts roasting around an old oak log fire and uh, uh, fake snow on a Christmas tree and sleigh bells and Santa Claus and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, White Christmas, of course, had been written by a Jewish songwriter, Irving Berlin, uh, which Bill was um, never slow to point out. Um, uh, the most popular Christmas song ever, ever, ever written, perhaps. So he got this idea to do a to to to, to do a Christmas album, and this was also a way to bring together uh, all of the all of the Phillies artists under one under one umbrella, and 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 in a way to to show off the label, to show off his artists, uh, and to show off himself. Notably, it's called Phil Spector's Christmas Gift for You. Um, Motown did Christmas albums. They were never called Barry Gordy's Christmas Gift for You. Um, so again, this was very much about Phil and about Phil stamping his imprimatur on it and assembled all the team in Gold Star through the course of a uh, scorchingly hot August, uh, having to drum up this Christmas atmosphere in the middle of August. Uh, fantastic record. I mean, absolutely fantastic record. Uh, and then suffered the most terrible of fates because the book it was released uh, was the same week in which uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And after that, nobody was in the mood for uh, Phil Spector's Christmas album. And the album died a, died a very sad uh, commercial death. But interestingly, it's, it's one of those records that's just gone on and on and on. And I don't know what happens in America, but certainly here in Britain, uh, you know Christmas is coming because you begin to hear all of these wonderful uh, Christmas album songs on the radio, and they're still played incessantly. Uh, and indeed, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without the Phil Spector Christmas album. And that's very much true uh, in the States to this day. And 
Immediately on the heels of the Kennedy assassination, the Beatles roll in from England and conquer the world. And the Beatles are huge Phil Spector fans. You know, they they had done a version of To Love Him, To Know Him is to Love Him at their DECA auditions. John Lennon in particular loved Phil Spector's productions, and Spector's excited by the music, but this is a harbinger of change that he never really recovers from. I think I think that's absolutely right there, yeah. Um uh, interestingly, he was uh, he, he was in London uh, um, plugging the Ronettes. The Ronettes were on tour over here, uh, and he was in London and flew back into uh, um, New York with the Beatles on the same plane as as the Beatles uh, when when they landed in in America in 1964. Uh, and if you look at film of that, you can see Phil sort of shuffling down the airplane steps behind them, wearing a corduroy Beatles cap and, and looking rather sort of a, rather chuffed to be in the company of these, of these, the new, the new pop sensation. Um, and of course it was, it was a relationship that would, that would, that would um, uh, have spectacular results some years later, uh, right at the very end of their career with the let it be album. And then with John Lennon and George Harrison and so forth. But at that particular time, uh, the British invasion, the Beatles, uh, Herman's Hermits, unbelievable as it may seem to recall. Freddie and the Dreamers, even more unbelievable as it may seem to recall. Uh, people like Ian Whitcomb and the Rolling Stones. The, 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 the British invasion really swept away huge swathes of American popular music at that time, dominated the airwaves, dominated the media. All the excitement was, was about these, these extraordinary long-haired kids from London, kids from Liverpool coming over with this, what appeared to be a vibrant refreshing exciting new sound uh and and it made the wall of sound made phil's wall of sound 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 pretty old pretty quick um and and it it didn't mark his demise immediately of course uh had a big hit with the ronettes walking in the rain was uh was after the beatles had arrived in america and then as we've said uh you've lost that loving feeling and um uh and then river deep mountain high but I think he was rather he was rather blindsided by by, by this and, 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 and unsure quite how to play this and, and quite what to do. Um, he tried actually to sign the Rolling Stones uh, to Phillies, which would have been a really really interesting development uh, and would have been a pretty amazing thing to see. Uh, he, he was friends with uh, their manager Andrew Oldham, who in fact had, had, had based a lot of his moves as a manager on Phil. Andrew Oldham idolised Phil. Uh, and when Phil Spector came to Britain uh, for the first time, he met Andrew Oldham. Andrew courted him, took him around town, introduced him to various people. Uh, and, and they went along to, to, to Decca to try and get uh, Decca to um, the Rolling Stones label, to, to try and get uh, Decca to surrender the contract to, uh, to Phil Spector and Phyllis. But of course, Decca were having uh, absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, and, and there's this memorable session where Phil actually played on a, on, on a Rolling Stones session, uh, and, and Gene Pitney turns up uh, with a bottle of uh, Cointreau. He just coming from coming from France. Um, so these were these were high times and good times. But um, I, I, personally, I would I would have loved to have seen Phil Spector produce the Rolling Stones. I think that would have been a really really interesting thing. But that was not to be. And, and I think the British invasion, as I say, it it it, it rather knocked him for six. And in 65, you know, he, he, he makes it through, kind of bluffs his way through 64 in a way. He has the enormous success with the Righteous Brothers, and that sort of overshadows how much he was struggling. But then in 65, he tries to sign the Young Rascals, and Ahmet Erdogan of Atlantic beats him out. Literally, they're having a showdown. They're both schmoozing the band the same 
night, uh, pinging right. back and forth like a ping pong table. And Amit wins that. He tries to sign the Love and Spoonful, who are about to become one of the hottest folk rock bands going. John Sebastian d- thinks Phil Spector would probably be the wrong producer for them, and he was probably right. And then he signs... Yeah. Uh, a folk group in Los Angeles, the Modern Folk Quartet, and records a really fascinating yeah. song with them, but he never releases it. No, I mean, go figure. This is this is, and I think at this point, Phil is beginning to lose his bearings in in, in, in all sorts of ways. Um, the eccentricities that have made him uh, both infuriating and 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 in some ways charming uh, are beginning to impose themselves more and more. Uh, he's beginning to behave rather oddly. Uh, he's married uh, Ronnie, the lead singer from the Renettes. Uh, he's got her effectively locked up in his in, in his house in, uh, in in Beverly Hills. There, um, I, I think he he imagines himself as being sort of beleaguered by all sorts of imaginary demons, uh, and I think he's feeling rather sort of thrown for a loop by these, these, not just the musical changes, but the cultural changes that are happening in, in, in America and in music at that time. Uh, what we might call the, the drug culture, for one of a better word, psychedelic music, all of these things that are coming along. Uh, record executives suddenly starting to wear Nehru collars and, uh, uh, and, and talking about your head is in the beautiful bag and so forth. Um, I think Phil's rather confused by all of this and as you say, makes this makes this great great record by, by the modern folk quartet. Um, nothing happens. Uh, then he signs uh, a, a, a deal uh, to, to produce um, uh, Dion, the Warner Brothers. Signs up with Warner Brothers, uh, produces this this very odd Dion record that's that's almost funereal. It's it's so slow and lugubrious. I mean, it's an extraordinary example of the wall of sound in all its intensity and magnitude. Um, Phil is lost. I mean, you know, before that, of course, he, he, he signs a production deal with uh, A&M and, and does, uh, in 68, does Sonny Charles of the Checkmates, uh, Black Pearl. I don't know if you had intended to mention that or play that, but that's a, that's a wonderful record. And that's a kind of fusion, really, of the wall of sound and, and what at that time passes for sort of contemporary soul music. I want to talk a little bit about Ike and Tina Turner and River Deep Mountain High. This is his last roll of the dice of the high uh, golden age of Phil Spector. He, he, he signs Ike and Tina Turner, who at this time are one of the known, most respected and hottest acts in R&B. They'd had a, a run of hits in the early 60s. They had some trouble with some labels, and so they weren't even charting that well, but as a live act, the I Continue Turner Review is right up there with James Brown. He produces a TV special, the TNT special, which is uh, sort of a, a takeoff of the Tammy show, which had happened with James Brown and the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys uh, the year before. And he he cuts this deal with Ike and Tina Turner, and he gets Ike to agree. He tells Ike, I want to work with you guys. I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to get her on Ed Sullivan. I'm going to have a number one hit. And what I need you to do is nothing. And Ike Turner, this is a guy who's been producing records and, and is a, a tyrant in his own right, a, a musical genius and producer and and powerful overlord inspector comes to him and says i want you to sit down and do nothing and i'm going to produce <laughs> tina <laughs> and he gets the team he gets his favorite songwriters jeff barry and ellie greenwich back together to write a song for her. the problem is those two have divorced so they it's not the same as when they wrote to do run run tell us a little bit about how the process was different in the creation of river deep mountain high 
Well, as you, as you say, first of all, he had to get rid of Ike, who, who's, a, who's a pretty uh, a pretty powerful character, a pretty strong character. Uh, of course, also shares with Phil uh, a liking for carrying guns, um, so not someone you, you want to mess around with. Uh, when I met Ike Turner uh, to talk about this, he was actually he was actually very uh, very generous about Phil. He said, "Well, if uh, you know Phil said he could do it, and I was very happy to let uh, Phil do it." Um, what he didn't mention, and what I think is probably the case, is that he actually paid Ike Turner a, 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 a fairly substantial sum of money to actually stay away from the studio. Um, so I, I don't think it was simply Ike surrendering his ground on, on the basis of his recognition of Phil's talent and genius. Uh, I think there was probably some uh, uh, financial incentive for, for, for him to do that. Um, but as you say, the, 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 the actual creation of the record and the making of the record, the writing of the song uh, was like was like pulling teeth. Uh, um, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry, um, not on the best of terms, but uh, badgered together essentially by Phil um, and, and they come together and, and, and finally manage to, to, to pull this song out. Uh, Phil goes into the studio, uh, the gang is all here, all the old um, Wall of Sound favourites uh, and uh, Tina Turner who, who's used to working I think quite quickly with Ike, Ike wasn't someone who'd would want to spend a lot of time, i.e. spend a lot of money in the studios and, and would get things done very, very quickly. And Tina Turner finds herself subject to to, to um, Spectre's uh, laborious, teeth-grinding uh, wait and wait and wait some more regime uh, and, and, and has to sing over and over and over and over again. He, he, he drives her further and further and further uh, to, to get her to reach the, the absolute heights that he wants her to reach. Uh, and, and, and she was there almost stripping down to her skin because they the sweating so much and the, and the, the heat intensity of this studio and heat and intensity of this session. Uh, and, and, and finally, this, this, this record all, all comes together. Um, I, 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 in many ways, as I say, it's an, it's an extraordinary record. It's, it's a remarkable record. It's not my favorite Bill Spector record. Um, and, and if you ever really tried to dance to it, um, it's, it's, you know, there are so many different time signatures going on there. It's, it's, it's something to sort of sit back and gaze at with wonder, but it's not something to truly immerse yourself in and feel uplifted or impassioned by, to, 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 to my view anyway. Um, and it wasn't a hit in America. It, it, it died a horrible death. Um, and I think that really is the, it, it's, it's the death knell for the first chapter of, of Phil Spector's career. He was so cast down by this, so demoralized by this. Uh, and as I alluded to, you know, he's at the same time, he's, he's, he's got these personal difficulties going on. Uh, I, I think the insecurities about his, about his career, the, the insecurities that always undermine his conviction in his own genius. And there's certainly that conviction, but at the same time, there was that terrible insecurity. I think this plays right into the insecurities and his sense of bitterness and disappointment. Uh, and and he, he just stops. He just withdraws altogether, retreats to the, to, to, to the mansion in Beverly Hills, shuts the door, and that's it for the next two years. And it's an extraordinary sort of close to, 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 to the great first flourish of Phil Spector's career. So he left Phil Spector in 1966. He had walked away from the recording industry pretty angry at the failure in America of his single with Ike and Tina Turner, River Deep Mountain High. In 1968, he cuts a deal with A&M Records and comes back. But you say that 
his years, his two years away from the record industry had left him estranged, bitter, and afraid. Can you talk a little bit about Spectre's mood and his period of exile? Yeah, I think. Well, I think that's. I think those those words describe it really. I mean, he was he was estranged, bitter, and afraid. Um, still licking his wounds from the from the disappointment of uh, of River Deep Mountain High and, and the reaction that he'd had over that. Um, and then, as you say, he 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 signed uh, a deal with A and M. Uh, made actually a, a really lovely record uh, called Black Pearl with uh, Sonny Charles and the Checkmates, um, which didn't sound very much like a Phil Spector record at all. It sounded like a sort of Philly soul or, or, or Motown record, a beautiful soul ballad, and had a sort of moderate success with that. Uh, but then that, that too was very short-lived. And, and he was really, he was drifting, I think. He was in a period of sort of not quite knowing where he belonged or what he was supposed to be doing. Uh, w- 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 one of his friends, uh, David Kessel, uh, who played on a lot of Phil Spector records, um, described him as being like Sherlock Holmes without a case. And I think that's probably a very apt, apt, apt description. And really, the lifeline was, was thrown um, at the end of 1969, uh, when the Beatles uh, went into, went into um, Abbey Road to record um, what would prove to be their last album, Get Back. And the sessions on that didn't work out to anybody's satisfaction. Uh, and, and they sort of shelved those sessions for a while and unsure what to do. And in the meantime, Alan Klein had moved into the picture. And Klein knew Spectre from way, way back. And it was Klein's idea to suggest to the Beatles that Phil Spectre should be brought in to, uh, to, 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 to finally bring this, this, this Beatles album, Let It Be, uh, to, to fruition, and and in January 1970 he arrived in London, uh, and that was the intention to, to 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 do what he'd always wanted to do, really, which was to work with the Beatles. And that gave him a sense of mission that he needed. I mean, working with A&M with the blank slate, it just it seemed like a continuation of his period in the mid 60s when he thought about signing the Love and Spoonful or contended for the Rascals, but it just couldn't really throw himself into anything but he definitely threw himself into the Beatles he's he's in England for almost two years uh you know a lot of people have knocked his version of Let It Be most famously Paul McCartney who you know re-released the album in 2001 I think as Let It Be Naked and Glenn Johns the engineer on the project has has knocked it you know John Lennon and George Harrison were always supporters of Phil Spector's version of Let It Be. I think Lennon said something, we gave him the biggest pile of shit-sounding shit, and he gave us back a serviceable record, which I think is a pretty fair assessment. Um, but then he goes on to work with, with Lennon on the song Instant Karma. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came together? Yeah, well, actually, uh, what, what, what happened was that, that he arrived in London in 1970, and, and the very first thing he did was to record Instant Karma with Lennon there. He'd only been in London for a few days, uh, and he met up with Lennon. Lennon was going into the studio um, to do this song, Instant Karma, and uh, Phil went in there to, to, to produce that. And it, it was, funnily enough, it was a surprise even to everybody who was on the uh, Klaus Vormann. Uh, who played bass on that record, told me that um, he arrived at the session uh, and, and the musicians were in the studio and they could hear a voice coming from the control room uh, giving all sorts of instructions. And it was only at that point they realized it was actually Phil Spector who was producing the record. But I think the fact that he that he, he spun on a dime, metaphorically speaking, went into the studio, worked with Lennon, I think that endeared him to Lennon and showed Lennon that, that you know, he'd come to London in order to actually get things done. He wasn't just cruising. He wasn't wasting time. 
And so from that, he then took on the, these, these sort of rather moribund tapes from, from, from the Beatles uh, and, 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 and turned them into something serviceable, as you say. Uh, I think more than serviceable, actually. I think he made a very credible job of it, creditable job of it. Of course, the, the, the song that caused the, the major controversy and that really uh, raised Paul McCartney's ire was The Long and Winding Road, um, which Spectre went uh, full force Spectre on it, you might say. I mean, he added choirs, he added choruses, he added strings, uh, turned this rather simple, rather plaintive ballad into this sort of huge melodramatic statement, uh, which almost acted as a sort of finale, really, a, a, a gross sort of cinescope finale uh, to the Beatles' career. But McCartney hated that because uh, he claimed that Spectre hadn't told him he was going to do that. The first, the first he learned about it was when he actually heard the track. Uh, and as you say, he, he rather took his uh, t- t- took his revenge, uh, you know, many many years later by releasing "Let It Be" naked. And I think that actually was an act of revenge against Spectre. Uh, it was it was him after all these years nurturing this sort of sense of. Uh, sense of resentment and sense of having been betrayed by, by primarily by Alan Klein, but also being betrayed by, uh, by, by, by Spectre. Uh, that was his, that was his revenge. But of course the album uh, won a Grammy that year and, and Paul McCartney very happily went up and, and received the Grammy. So he couldn't have been that, uh, that, that disillusioned with it all. Um, but, but certainly I, I think it, it, it served to sort of answer an ambition, a dream, you might say that, that Spectre had nurtured for, six years ever since he, he met the Beatles you know he was with the Beatles in in London in 1964 actually traveled back with them on a plane to America at the height of Beatlemania uh and while he didn't have a lot of good to say about a lot of things that happened in the British invasion and about the way in which music had changed at that point I think he did nurture a particular affection for the Beatles and the respect and, and indeed almost a sense of awe for the Beatles so that work on their album was, was, was a fantastic thing for him and, and a crushing disappointment when McCartney was so critical of it. And Spectre also managed to get himself into some of the feuding that was going on. Lennon and McCartney were sniping back and forth and George Harrison was generally taking Lennon's side and Spectre kind of threw himself into that uh, brouhaha a little bit and I, I think um, you know McCartney's bitterness all these years later is some of it can be attributed to Spectre taking part in the catcall. And I mean, like the recording of uh, How Do You Sleep, for example, that Spectre produced on the Imagine album was a pretty vicious hit at McCartney. So I can kind of see it from both sides. I mean, yeah. um, you know, it, it sort of brought out the worst in, in Spectre to, to give him a feud to jump into. And he was always happy to take part in a feud. But he records Instant Karma, finishes up Let It Be. And Instant Karma, you know, instant was the right word. They recorded it quickly and released it within a week of the recording i believe he dives into the letter b project but then he works with lennon again on plastic ono band and unlike instant karma where you can definitely tell this is a phil specter record the way he recorded the drums is very different but on john lennon plastic ono band he really stepped back i mean this is the one of the few works of phil specter that doesn't have the phil specter fingerprint all over it this is one of the few times where he really stepped back and let the artist take the forefront I think that's absolutely right, and I, and I think that's a measure of the respect that he had for for for, for, for John Lennon, uh, and also uh, by connection through connection by by the rather grudging respect that he had for Yoko Ono, because I think she was there uh, as she was at all times uh, at Lennon's side in, in that period, 
uh, and uh, Spectre sort of rather led me to believe that you know she she had rather more to say about the record and the way the record should be made than than, than, than Spectre would necessarily have liked. Uh, but he was prepared to um, uh, indulge her, shall we say? But I think it's I think it's a, that that record in particular is is a measure of how much Spectre could, or the degree to which Spectre could actually burrow his ego, burrow his sense of grandiosity in the service of the artist, and. That record is, is compared to the usual Phil Spectre production. That record is incredibly stark, incredibly stripped back, uh, almost naked, you might say, to borrow the word that Paul McCartney would use some years later. Uh, but it's, it's a very sparse, hard-sounding record, uh, which actually perfectly matches, of course, the, 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 the themes of the song, because that's, that's John Lennon's um, final Scream album. Um, you know, songs like God... Uh, I don't believe in Jesus, Elvis, Beatles, I just believe in me, Mother, and then the tenderness of, of, of love. You know, those are songs in, in which Lennon is really, really bearing his soul. And I think Spectre recognized and respected the fact that if a man's bearing his soul, he doesn't need to do it with the wall of sound behind him. Let him bear his soul. And then around this time, he starts working with George Harrison on George Harrison's Apocal first solo album, All Things Must Pass. And that's very much a collaboration between Harrison and Spectre. Talk a little bit about the dynamics between those two on that creating that masterpiece. I think he had a lot of respect for George Harrison. Uh, and of course, this was a very important record for George Harrison to make. George, George had been scoring up songs over over the previous few years um, that the Beatles hadn't used on their albums. And this was really his chance to, to demonstrate his rather frustrated abilities as a songwriter and, 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 and as an independent creator. And I think uh, Spectre uh, respected that as well. But again, the approach here was slightly different. I mean, it's, it's much more recognizably a, a, a Phil Spectre record or a Phil Spectre production, one should say. Uh, and, uh, you know, he applied the same techniques. He, 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 he filled the Abbey Road studios with, with, with a galaxy of musicians, three drummers, including Ringo Starr, four keyboards, horns, a platoon of guitarists, including Eric Clapton, of course. Um, and so it's, it's recognizably a Phil Spector record, I think, or recognizably a Phil Spector production. I, I, I personally, I think that's the, I think that's the best solo Beatles album there ever was. I think it, I think it's a better album than, than any of the any of the Lennon albums, a better album than any of the albums that uh, that, that George Harrison made after that. It's it's a terrific record, but it, it sort of ended in tears a little bit. Um, I, I think by then, Spectre, he was out of his comfort zone geographically. He'd been in London. He didn't like to travel. Uh, he didn't particularly like being in England. He didn't like English television. He didn't like English food. He didn't like staying in English hotels. Uh, he'd started drinking more heavily, so so he was he was getting a bit out of hand in the studio. Uh, I think tempers were beginning to fray a little bit, and then eventually uh, he, he he more or less abandoned the sessions, uh, leaving George to do the vocal overdubs and, and and some of the guitar overdubs, which I think rather rather puzzled and angered George Harrison. Um, uh, as, as somebody said later, well, if George Harrison can't look over his, look after his own overdubs and uh, vocal overdubs and guitar overdubs, who can? But it's not a producer's duty, I don't think, to lead the artist to do that. 
Uh, there was a rather funny uh, memo that that, um, that Spectre actually filed to Harrison from back in America, uh, giving him sort of quite specific instructions about do this, do that, do this, do the other thing. And uh, he signed it, Hare Krishna, Phil Spectre. Now, I think the last person who would have been subscribed to the philosophy of the uh, Radha Krishna temple was, uh, was Phil Spectre. But there he is, um, rather sort of ingratiating, no, not ingratiating himself, uh, rather trying to sweeten the sweeten the pill by signing off to, to George Hare Krishna Phil. Um, I don't think Hare Krishna uh, was something that Phil Spectre would ever have got himself involved in. And let's hear a little bit of that Sonny Charles and the Checkmate song Black Pearl, 1968. behind and, and the way Phil Spector's career worked in this portion of his life we're going to be talking about songs before we hear the snippets because he front loaded his productivity in this period heavily uh, in the 68 to 73 period that we'll be talking about so that was Sonny Charles that was from his A&M but let's return back to the George Harrison thing one of the most poignant things about reading the book to me was the way you tell how he started drinking on these George Harrison sessions because you know, he travels to London. He leaves his lifestyle behind. Back in L.A. or New York, he had a circle of cronies. He had all-night delis. You know, his insomnia was no problem. He could hit the town and hang out. But in London, the town shut down, essentially, you know, at 10, 11 p.m. And he yeah. didn't know anybody. There's no Jewish delis. And he starts drinking Manischewitz. And, you know, this is somebody who had always been a teetotaler in the studio and very professional. And... It's somewhat understandable how you might turn to drink in those circumstances, but alcohol and Phil Spector, you know, do not mix. And this becomes something that will dog him through the rest of his career. What do you think he was a full-blown alcoholic or, or how much do you ascribe substance issues to his ultimate problems and downfall? And that's a very interesting question. I mean, I think it, I think it made a major contribution to, to, to his ultimate de- uh, downfall. Uh, as you say, the, the, there's no great record of, of Phil having been a been a heavy drinker before this period. Uh, I mean, he may have been a social drinker, but he certainly didn't drink in the studio. There's no record of him having got drunk in the studio or or or, 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 or taking any kind of substances at all. Um, people have said, "Oh, he was into cocaine." I I, I never heard any any evidence of that. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think Phil Spectre and drugs would have got on particularly well because I think Spectre, above all, is somebody who would have wanted to be in control of himself and in control of his mental processes. Uh, al- alcohol perhaps served to anesthetize his pain, but I think drugs would have just exacerbated the incipient paranoia and insecurities that he had. But I think you're I think you're right, perhaps in in, in analyzing exactly why he why he began to lose his moorings so radically at this point. He wasn't someone who, who, who liked being out of his comfort zone. He, he, he never traveled. I mean, he, he traveled between New York and Los Angeles. He'd been to Mexico once to get a, a Mexican divorce. Uh, he'd never been to Hawaii. Um, George Harrison happily went off to India with Ravi Shankar. That, that would have been the stuff of 
Phil Spector's nightmares to, <laughs> to go to India. You know, he was somebody that liked his nest. He liked his nest. He liked, as you say, he liked his, his friends. He liked familiar things around him. In that sense, he wasn't at all an adventurous or, or ambitious person. And I think also perhaps the fact that, in a way, the responsibility of, of, of working with the Beatles, I think that perhaps weighed on him. You know, that, that there was a sense here that, that he'd been out in the wilderness, he was coming back, this was, a, this was a big shot, a big chance. And I'm sure that would have weighed on his mind quite, quite considerably. And he did succeed. I mean, you know, the Instant Karma single, the Let It Be uh, album, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. These these were all very successful. George Harrison's All Things Must Pass was not only critically successful, it was an enormous popular success. I mean, blew the doors off the record industry at the time for a triple album to sell in those numbers. Number one single with My Sweet Lord. And, and he also produces another masterpiece with John Lennon's Imagine album, which is a very different project than the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band. Talk a little bit about Imagine and what they were trying to do to get John Lennon back to the top of the charts. Well, Lennon, Lennon, Lennon described this album as, as, as having chocolate on it for public consumption. Uh, so I think Lennon, Lennon, in a way, he'd been through his sort of primal, primal uh, screen phase. Uh, so this is a much more, a, a much more reflective, a much more congenial, if that's the right word. So certainly a much more um, uh, palatable, uh, easier type, easier to digest uh, record. Uh, and you've got some lovely songs on there, of course. Jealous Guy, which is just a beautiful song. Imagine itself, which 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 turns into one of the one of the, the great anthems of the 20th century. Uh, what whatever one 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 may think about the about the sentiments of it. Um, but again, I think it's 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 Phil being at the service of the musicians, Phil being at the service of the creator, and Phil being at the service of the songs. And I I think this is this to me is what really characterizes this period in, in, in Spectre's career is that if, if the first phase of his career is, is, is Spectre imposing himself on everything he touches, imposing himself on the artists, imposing himself on the musicians, imposing himself on the studio, when he's working with the Beatles, it's as if he realizes that, that he's encountering a force as great as, if not greater, probably greater than himself. And, and this is not a time to impose, it's a time to serve. And so these records, to me, are very symbolic of somebody at the service of the music rather than trying to sort of dominate and determine the music. And then there's a video on YouTube of John Lennon. This is an outtake from some of the footage that they shot around the Imagine sessions, which were all filmed, of session of Lennon and Spectre in the studio. And Lennon is chewing out the engineer over... Pulling up the queuing up the song at the wrong point, and at the same time he's whistling the harmony he wants Spectre to sing, which is a pretty complicated harmony. Whistles it very quickly to Spectre one time, and then they cut to the take, and Spectre nails it. And then Lennon immediately goes back to chewing out the engineer, and it really gives a picture of a how talented Phil Spectre was. That here's somebody who can sing harmony vocals with John Lennon, which is I mean talk about the major leagues, and do it in such a way that. You know, you get the tune whistled at you in a burst in the middle of a tirade that the engineer and Spectre's completely calm and professional. And, and it's so much the opposite of the boy tyrant that we think of Phil Spectre. And I think your point about him being in service to the Beatles and acknowledging at least John Lennon as a force greater than his own is very correct. But then 
he comes back to America and he's got his ruinous second marriage to Ronnie Spector. She's been descending into alcoholism and drug addiction for a while. They have sort of a folly adieu in which she married a guy that she thought made her famous. And he married someone that he thought was his star and singer. They didn't really have a human relationship. Talk about the dynamic there and, and how messed up it all got. Well, I, I think it was messed up from the very beginning. I, I don't think it needed to get messed up. It was messed up at the start. Uh, you know, she was she she was she was his dream. Uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, a beautiful, beautiful uh, girl who sang like an angel. Uh, in his mind, I, I think he created her, and and to a certain extent, that's that's true. You know, he created the person that she was. He created the star that she was. Um, talking about jealous guy, if ever there was a jealous guy, it was it was Phil Spector. He was he was so possessive of her. Um, you know the stories about her being locked in the house and not being allowed out. Uh, oh, most of those stories are true. She 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 wasn't allowed out. She was locked in the house. She she was a she was a prisoner in a gilded cage and and bird in a gilded cage and and it. And it wasn't always gilded. Um, there are all sorts of terrible stories that I, w- I was told about. Uh, Don, Don Kirshner, who'd, um, uh, who, who'd uh, the great music publisher who provided Phil with so many great songs, uh, paid a, told me that he paid a visit to the uh, to, to Spectre's house one day and he, and he heard a banging going on upstairs and he went up to investigate what it was and opened a cupboard door uh, and Ronnie was locked inside. Uh, Spectre had actually locked her inside the cupboard. Um, uh, this is this actually goes to something that that um, uh, his two uh, ad- adopted sons also told me that he would lock them in their bedroom at night so they couldn't come out. There was a very very strange, very strange element to to, to, to Phil about wanting to control people, uh, wanting to have them under his thumb, not wanting them to leave when they wanted to leave. Uh, and all of this, this, this pattern in his behavior, this, this, this sort of incubates like a, like a cancer inside him. And I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I think this actually reaches its, 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 its most malevolent flourishing, uh, in, in the death of Lana Clarkson. Um, uh, you know, he was somebody that wanted to own people and, and uh, he wanted to own Ronnie and he didn't want to be owned. And she wasn't, she wasn't really, um, yeah, by no means was she in any way a, a, a domestic person who was cut out to be uh, cut out to be anybody's wife. As somebody said, uh, Ronnie couldn't even boil an egg, so she wasn't going to be sitting in the uh, sitting in the kitchen devising endless dishes to sort of keep herself amused and to keep Phil's stomach happy. Uh, she had a painting by numbered set, and she'd watch um, daytime soaps and, and work on her fingernails. I think that that was her existence for many many years, and that's not a that's not an existence which is going to make you happy. So when the divorce did come, it was very bitter, uh, very rancorous, very acrimonious. She eventually fled from the house with her mother, uh, Ronnie in her bare feet to get away. Uh, and of course, the, the divorce settlement was was very punitive of Phil. Uh, and, and, and he got his revenge by uh, writing on the back of each check. I don't know if I can use a four-letter word here, but a four-letter word beginning with F, off, on the back of each check that he sent her for alimony, so that the, the teller at the bank would turn over the turn over the uh, the check, and there'd be this uh, this expletive written there. So um, he ended up hating her, and uh, I, I I think she ended up hating him. It wasn't a happy outcome at all. 
And around this time, he adds another element to the mix when he hires a man named George Brand to be his bodyguard. And this adds the frisson of guns and gunplay. And, and tell us a little bit about George Brand and Phil Spector's relationship, because it seems like Brand ultimately took care of Phil and, and Phil's children. I mean, was a protective force, but at the same time added this real palpable menace to the aura of Phil Spector. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, George became not just his bodyguard; he became this sort of general factotum. He became almost a member of the family. Uh, he had a room in, in Inspector's house. Uh, up until that point, uh, there's no indication that Phil's bodyguards carried guns. I mean, he liked to surround himself with guys who were experts in martial arts and, and, and who looked like refrigerators. You know, big guys who could look after themselves. Um, but George George Brand uh, carried a gun. And at that point, we begin to hear about Phil Spector carrying a gun and, and becoming very enamored of carrying guns. Guns in the I mean, he had guns around, holsters around his ankles. He'd wear guns around the house. Uh, bizarre stories about him uh, uh, making making telephone calls to, to to record executives, you know, business calls, and he'd be there with with a sort of gun on the table or gun in his hand while he was making these calls. Not that they could see it, not that they were aware of it, but almost almost to sort of empower himself in some way. I think guns made him feel bigger than he was. Guns gave him a sense of uh, gave him a sense of confidence. He, he saw him, he came to see himself in a bizarre way as the Godfather, uh, and I mean that quite literally. I mean, he would sit there with the, the, the Kessel brothers, who, who became his sort of uh, apprentices in a way. These were the sons of Barney Kessel, who, who played on uh, so many of the great records during the Wall of Sound days. He'd sit there with the Kessel brothers uh, at his dining table, uh, and they'd sort of act out scenes from The Godfather. Come, sit at my table. You know, he'd literally sort of acting out scenes with, uh, with, with, with uh, Phil of Don Corleone. So I think he, he began to, uh, it, it fed into his sort of inflated sense of self and reinforced his sense of self. And of course, it also exacerbated that that tendency that, that I mentioned earlier of not wanting to people to go, of intimidating people. This is when we begin to hear the stories about Phil pulling out guns in the studio, uh, people being around at Phil's house wanting to leave, women wanting to leave, and Phil uh, reaching for guns and saying, you're not going anywhere. Just this general air of, uh, of, of intimidation and menace and a terrible sort of demented kind of machismo, which 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 overwhelmed him really in a very tragic way, and was obviously to have absolutely fatal consequences. And let's hear a little bit of the music that that let Phil have that kind of power. This is this is Phil's production of John Lennon's Instant Karma. That was Phil Spector and John Lennon, Instant Karma. And, and like you said, you know, he has this period in 69 or 70, 71, where he's in England working with the Beatles, very productive, assists in the making of these masterpieces, which bring joy to millions, bring millions of dollars uh, to the Beatles and to Alan Klein and to himself. But then he's back in L.A. 
his marriage has collapsed. He's surrounded himself, you know, with bodyguards and, and lackeys. I mean, the Kelso brothers are very talented kids, but I mean, this is a, you know, 30 something man hanging out with these teenagers who are thrilled to be in his presence. And, and there's this sort of ghoulish nocturnal play acting aspect to it that is chilling, especially knowing the outcome. But in the meantime, in the seventies, he tries several times to get back into the game. I mean, he, he has disastrous sessions in London, in Los Angeles with John Lennon. Like you said, this is one where he not only pulled a gun, but he fired a gun in the studio. Is this correct? Uh, that's right. Yeah. He fired a gun into the ceiling. Um, and, and John Lennon and, and May Pang told me about this. Uh, John Lennon and May Pang were there in the studio. Uh, they, they called it was a blank. Uh, and it wasn't until the next morning that, um, that, that, that a roadie sort of came to them at breakfast and, and a, Prized the bullet out of the ceiling at, uh, at Gold Star and said, "Well, no, no, it was a, it was a live bullet." But these these were the rock and roll sessions, and they they were they were completely out of uh, completely out of control. I mean, Spectre was was drinking heavily. Lennon was completely out of control. Uh, he was on furlough, if you like, from uh, from Yoko. He was there in uh, there in Los Angeles with uh, May, who was this this young assistant uh, who, who obviously. Very lovely person, but was completely out of her depth. Uh, Lennon was hanging around with people like Harry Nilsson and, and Ringo, um, getting intolerably drunk, behaving like an idiot in the troubadour, putting people's tampons on his head, and just the whole the whole scene was a, was a scene of sort of baroque excess and, and uh, uh, degradation, really, that, that doesn't dignify anybody. Spectre was turning up at, at the recording studios. On one occasion, dressed as a surgeon in a, in a, in a white coat with a stethoscope around his neck. Um, one night, Lennon was was so drunk that uh, Spectre and, uh, and and George had to take him back to Lou Adler's house, where he was, where, where Lennon was uh, staying. And they actually tied him up. He was so drunk, he was so out of control. And, and Spectre woke up tied up. Uh, sorry, uh, Lennon woke up tied up. So the whole thing was just a just a terrible, terrible situation, really. I think the I think the music on the album bears that out. I mean, it's a sort of it's a it's a pretty pointless album. I mean, the, the only reason that Lennon Lennon really recorded that album, set set out to record that album, uh, was that he owed money uh, to, to to a New York publisher for for for, for, for one of the songs, uh, a song that he that he modelled a Beatles song on. Um, uh, so it was. It was. Uh, it wasn't George Goldner. I forget the guy's name. It was Morris um, Levy that he owed the money to, and it was. Uh, he had, yeah, yeah. The only reason that Lennon, Lennon really embarked on that album was because he owed money to Morris Levy, who was a who was a pretty hard nosed New York music businessman, uh, and so he he promised to record a, record one of Levy's songs, and, and Levy had a piece of the album, I think, and so. So the whole the whole thing it, it got off to a very bad footing and it didn't get any better from then on. I mean, I, mean, I think it's an album that's best forgotten, really. And Spectre wasn't even able to bring it to the finish line, which becomes you know a pattern. In the book, you talk about an attempt to work with Cher, who had been you know uh, became famous working with Sonny Bono, who had been Spectre's protege in the '60s, and then you know Sonny left, and and Sonny and Cher became huge superstars. Then in the '70s. Cher is a superstar, gone solo, and she's working with David Geffen, who Spectre had mm. known as as a flunky in the '60s. And mm. by this point, Geffen has become one of the kings. And and 
Spectre actually punches Geffen and, and uses a homophobic slur at him uh, in the middle of those sessions. Tell us about that disaster. Well, again, it's, it's I, all of these things, you know, they're just symptoms of a man who, who, who is increasingly out of control. I mean, as you say, I, in a way, he's been gift wrapped with, 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 a, with a potential star there or a potential hit there. Uh, you know, Cher had her own reputation. Uh, they knew each other. They'd been friends. They, they went back a long way. Uh, and uh, she was seeing David Geffen at that point. And Geffen comes into the studio and, and starts making some sort of suggestions about the way the record should sound. Rather than just being sort of indulgent or, 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 or negotiating the situation, Spectre takes a punch at him. Um, he, he was he was he was really his own worst enemy, and and alcohol was the was the agent that, that you know that was the fuel that was poured on the flame really, and and it, and it didn't take a lot for for Phil to sort of to really flame out of control and and to become unbearable. I mean, people talk of him uh, in, in in that alcoholic state, in that in that. In, the, in that drunken state as, as being unbearable, as being obnoxious. And so it's really no surprise that the session was very, very quickly petered out. Uh, I think there was, there's one song that really came out of that, uh, The Love Like Yours Don't Come Knock Knock Knocking, uh, which was an old, um, uh, uh, an old song that he worked on back in the, back in the Phillies days. Um, but you know, that, that, that could have been, that, that could have been something that would have actually, perpetuated his career at that point and kept him in the limelight and, and, and kept him active and working. But he, for a man who, who, who carried guns around in an ankle holster, he had a terrible propensity for shooting himself in the foot, metaphorically speaking. Absolutely. And David Geffen was the wrong kind of enemy to make at that point in time. Uh, the guy uh, yeah, completely. yeah, but I think, I think, I think, you know, it's a measure really of, of how estranged uh, Phil Spector had become from the prevailing trends in music at that point. You know, Geffen was, uh, was, was, was doing very, very nicely, thank you, uh, with artists like uh, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Uh, Spectre would have had absolutely zero interest in any of these people. You know, they weren't his kind of music at all. I think he would have regarded, uh, uh, I love them, but he would have regarded them as, as, as an absolute affront to, 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 to rock and roll or the kind of rock and roll that he'd been making. Um, and, and and as you say, he, the David Geffen that he'd known had been, had been a sort of an ingrate, you know, who'd been very happy to be to be just hanging on in the studio uh, with his jaw dropping, you know, watching Spectre working, pleased to be around him. And and, and suddenly there's, he, he reemerges as this very powerful industry player. And I'm sure that would have got Phil Spectre's dander up as well. And. He does keep trying, though. He he hooks up with uh, faded rock and roll legend Dion, and they do an album together. Tell us, and that and that one actually gets finished, although Phil probably didn't produce all the tracks. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that attempted collaboration. Well, I I, I actually think this is this is a terrific record. Um, very few other people seem to, particularly at the time, uh, Dion didn't like it. Uh, thought that he hadn't been served well by by, by Spectre. Uh, and of course, it was only 20 years later that, that, that people began to talk about it as, as, as Spectre's forgotten masterpiece. It's a record that, uh, that seems to be, when you play it, it's a record that seems to be playing at sort of 24 RPM rather than 33 RPM. It's, it's probably the slowest, most dirge-like, most lagubrious record that, that Phil Spectre's ever made. 
Uh, and, and again, it's the, it's, it's the wall of sound in Excelsis. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary, uh, it, it's an extraordinary sounding record. Of course, he and Dion, I, I don't know if they actually knew each other back in the, back in the early days, the run around Sioux days. Uh, but they both came from the Bronx. Uh, and, uh, you know, Spectre would have, would have, um, that, that is something that would have endeared Dion to him. The fact they were both New York boys, uh, fantastic voice, of course, that Dion had, although he, Subsequently, sort of reinvented himself as a, as a, as a folk singer from, from Dion the Rocker. Um, but there are some there are some terrific songs on there. Uh, there are some terrific uh, terrific arrangements. I mean, at times it sounds as if he has the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing behind him. It's a big record. It's a it's a very it's a very fulsome production. Um, and I think uh, Dion rather felt that uh, rather felt that he was he was overwhelmed and engulfed and and, and rather rather ill-served by this. Uh, and of course, I hate to say it, but it was, it was Phil being drunk again. I mean, you mentioned Manischewitz, and this, this, this is almost Phil's Manischewitz album, really. I mean, you know, he would come in with, uh, with bottles of the stuff. Uh, Stan Ross, who, who did the engineering on that record, uh, remembered that um, he'd say to Phil, hey, Phil, are you going gonna to share that? And Spectre, no, no, I need this for myself. And he'd, he'd be there glugging this Jewish ritual wine uh, out of the bottle while he was producing, and and inevitably things would get increasingly testy, increasingly out of order. Uh, you're quite right to say it's a record that he actually finished, but it, it's rather a miracle that he did. And it's well worth a listen, like you say, especially if you put it on a good stereo and turn it up loud. It's it's definitely the wall of sound in full effect, and it it was out of sync with commercial trends at the time, but um, it's something well worth hearing and, and, and a good good album let's hear um a little bit from the next album we're going to talk about this is uh, leonard cohen death of a ladies man with phil specter And that was Death of a Ladies Man by Leonard Cohen. Now, Leonard Cohen seems like a really out-of-the-blue partner for Phil Spector, but this is something, this is a project he was very passionate about. What drew Phil Spector to Leonard Cohen and vice versa? Yeah, well, what, what drew them together, actually, was, was they both shared a manager, uh, a guy called Marty Machat. Uh, and it was Machat who, who, who initially brought them together. As you say, one couldn't imagine a more incongruous pairing, really. Um, I mean, Cohen, uh, a poet, a songwriter, who, as we know, uh, had established himself, uh, as much to his surprise as to anybody else's, with these very, very low-key, introspective, rather melancholic, rather spare recordings, just accompanying himself on a guitar or, or, or with a small sort of chamber, chamber quartet. Um, very, very quiet, very, very contemplative. Uh, the complete antithesis of, of 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 anything that Phil Spector was known for, certainly that Phil Spector was known for in in, in his glory days. Um, but they liked each other uh, bizarrely, uh, and and they seemed to get on well together despite everything that that happened during the sessions. The sessions were, I hate to keep singing the same old refrain, but but the sessions were fraught, and the sessions were drunk, 
and and Phil was was still you know, uh, had one hand on the controls and one hand on the bottle of Manischewitz. Uh, so I think you know things things got slightly testy. Um, Cohen complained that, uh, that, that that Spectre would have him doing his vocal dubs over and over and over again, uh, and, and then just use the guide vocals, which which uh, Cohen himself wasn't happy with. So I, I don't think Cohen was altogether happy with the with the, with the finished uh, result. And of course, the other thing that uh, Cohen most memorably had to say about those sessions was about the guns uh, and uh, guns everywhere. Um, uh, you know, he, he, uh, I'll quote you what, what Cohen actually said. He said that Spectre, and I quote, couldn't resist annihilating me. I don't think he can tolerate any other shadows in his own darkness. Just man to man, he's delightful. And with children, he's very kind. Uh, which is, it's nice to know he's kind with children. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think Cohen, uh, I, I, I think he, he liked him and, and if forgiveness was necessary, he forgave him. But it must be said that Spectre certainly brought out a very, very different Leonard Cohen. Uh, and again, it's, it's a record that, that, that many, many people hate. Cohen's, many of Cohen's most devoted followers hate because it's such a departure. But I think it's 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 certainly the most interesting record that um, that, that Leonard Cohen made, uh, and 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 Phil brought lots of different arrangements. Some of it was almost vaudevillian. Some of these arrangements, uh, again, the use of strings, the use of choirs. Um, it's a very it's a very very unusual uh, unusual um, Leonard Cohen record. And and going back just 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 for a second to talk about uh, gum. Um, this is something that that, that that Cohen said. He said that that's what these sessions were really about. Guns. People were armed to the teeth. You were biting into revolvers in your hamburgers. And at one point, uh, Spectre famously, with a bottle of wine in one hand and a, and, a, and a pistol in the other, came up to Leonard Cohen and put the pistol in his neck and said, I love you, Leonard. And Cohen, with admirable aplomb, just sort of moved the gun to one side and said, I hope you do, Phil. <laughs> um, but yeah, he lived. He lived to tell the tale. Um, and again, it's it's a it's a curio, but it's it's a really really interesting curio and and a singular curio. It's it's definitely worth a few listens. And then there's one more last guest project in the '70s for for Phil, and and that's the group the Ramones, which is another out of left field choice. But something about what was it that drew Phil to the Ramones? I think what drew the Ramones was Joey Ramone. Um, I, I don't think Phil was a great fan of, uh, of, of punk rock and, and, I, I, and the whole sensibility and culture that came with it. But I think in a bizarre way, he saw Joey as a, as a sort of male Ronnie Spector in a way. Uh, Joey, another New York, New York kid, uh, or you could imagine sort of standing on a street, 20 years old, imagine him standing on a street corner, uh, surrounded by a bunch of other kids forming an acapella group. Um, and, and Phil thought that he could actually uh, mold Joey. Uh, and so the other the other three members of the Ramones they were they were pretty much superfluous to Phil's requirements I think uh, which which of course irritated and annoyed them enormously and became very very quickly apparent where Phil would spend hours in the studios working on Joey's vocals and the others would be left to kick their heels in the Tropicana Motel or various bars or wherever they happened to be hanging out I think the Ramones were were a group that, that you know they'd record an album in ten minutes and here was Phil Spector taking weeks and weeks and weeks 
dragging on. Uh, 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 Joey actually called it interminable, the amount of time that went on that he was working on this. Um, and it, it, I'm sure it wasn't good for the health or either mental or physical of the of the other members of the group to be involved in this. More guns. Uh, at one point, he, he, he pulled a gun on DD. Um, I don't think, I should add, I don't think in, in pulling these guns on people, I don't think he ever really intended to pull the trigger, which perhaps may not sound much in the way of mitigating circumstances. Um, but I think it was done in a spirit of bravado rather than genuine genuine menace. Uh, and by this point, and this is, I think, very interesting, by this point, it's almost what people expected Phil Spector to do. And in, in, being a rock and roll record producer, it sort of gave him a license to behave in a way that anybody else in any other field, in any other occupation, the guns would have been taken away from him. If he'd been a lawyer or if he'd been a doctor, behaving in the way that he behaves, somebody would have would have put a check on it and said, Phil, you, Phil, you really can't behave like this, you know? And, and uh, there'd have been some kind of intervention and, and he'd have been taken quietly off and, and had proper psychiatric care because I do think it was a mental illness that, that, that he, was, uh, he, he was suffering from. But because it was Phil Spector, there, there was a kind of maverick license. This is what Phil does. This is what Phil does. Phil gets out his guns. Phil acts crazy. Ah, oh, that's just Phil being Phil. Um, it, was, it wasn't just Phil being Phil. It was something deeper and more and sadder than that. Uh, and, and it took a long, long time for that to, to really be addressed and, and, and to be dealt with head on, I think. And after that, he, he withdraws from the record industry and actually has a decade of pretty normal life. He, he moves in with his longtime assistant, Janice Zavala, and they have uh, twin children, a son and daughter. And there for a decade or so, Phil's actually kind of got it together in a quiet way. I think that's right. I think, I think um, Janice Zavala um, plays a very important and very sort of understated um, part in Phil's life as, 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 as a moderating, sobering, uh, and, and, and sensible influence on him. Uh, and, and in that period, as you say, uh, he moves out of, uh, moves out of Hollywood, uh, moves out to Pasadena, uh, a house out in Pasadena. So he's away from the mainstream geographically, um, and has these two delightful children. And he, 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 he's the dad. He takes them to the car wash. He goes to the supermarket. Uh, he said when they, when the children were first born, he said two things. I'm never going to take them to Disneyland. And I'm never going to go to the beach. And, uh, and, and he kept his word on that. But I think in other respects, uh, everybody who knew him at that point said that, said that he was a loving father and somebody who, 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 who was trying very, very hard to sort of to, to keep himself in order. Uh, the drinking stops, the socializing stops, um, you know, the, the acting out. The acting out stops. It's this. It's this almost sort of a blissful, idyllic interlude, really, in in, in, a, in a life of, of enormous turbulence and trouble. Uh, and, and this goes on for for a while until, again, this is this is completely upended by tragedy when his his ten year old son, Philip Junior, died of leukemia, uh, and that destroyed him. That really destroyed him, and it destroyed the the relationship with with Janice. Um, they they separated at that point. Although she later continued to work for him as a personal assistant, and she was with him 
for many, many years after that, uh, as I say, you know, a, a constant sort of a support in his life. But the, but the death of his son, uh, everybody says this, it, it just destroyed him. And, and uh, uh, it was very tragic. I mean, there's this, there's some, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to describe, I think, just how, how, how destructive it, it, it was. Um, yeah, I mean, losing a child is, by all accounts, the very worst emotional pain someone can go through in life. And the irony of his son dying at age nine or ten, when that was the age Phil was, when his father killed himself, that's just unspeakably awful. And, and uh, you know, Phil Spector's a very hard person to sympathize with, but you, I, I at least couldn't help sympathizing with him there. I mean, he's he's put his life together. He's actually uh, built enduring relationships. His daughter, Nicole, is still a supporter of his um, and had a close relationship, unlike the relationships he'd had with his first adopted children. And, you know, the son dies of leukemia and it all falls apart. And over the course of the next decade or so, you know, he, he puts together a uh, greatest hits collection, the Rhino box set. He, he uh, you know, goes to a lot of, he's inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, he makes a couple of attempts to get back into the business, even attempted to work with Celine Dion. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that, this is a really bizarre episode. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Celine Dion sort of comes into his life. Uh, and he has an opportunity to, to, to produce an album. I think in a way he's almost auditioning uh, as a producer uh, for an album. And, and she comes into town with her, with, with her, uh, her husband and manager. Uh, and, and again, this all, this all um, it all falls apart, really. Uh, and they managed to get one song uh, as a result of these sessions. Is this what I get for loving you? Um, which I think was, a, if I'm right in remembering, it's a, a, a Renette song, maybe a, a Darlene Love song. Uh, I, I've heard that actually. It was never released, but I've heard it. Uh, and it's terrific. It's really, really terrific. And it's a, it's a great sadness that it wasn't. Um, but the, the, the sessions were, were twofold, really. Phil uh, insisted on, on his, on his uh, technique of having a, an artist in the studio just repeating again and again and again, take after take after take. And angered and worried her husband, who was worried about the effects of this on Celine and her vocal cords. Um, and he also fell out with the with the guy from the record company, and uh, argued very very vociferously about uh, about the way in which he was going about things. So basically, he was dropped from the project. You know, one tends to forget that that, that Phil has had these sort of um, major and minor humiliations throughout his life. And we, we will come to another one in a minute with Star Sailor, uh, where he, it, it, it becomes apparent that his reputation really counts for nothing uh, and that he's just being judged on, on what he can do in that moment and at that time. And for all his brilliance and for all his track record and for all, all the, 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 the great producer that he is, um, he just couldn't manage working with Celine Dion. He just couldn't manage the... The things that were going on around it, he, he, he didn't have the diplomatic skills, or the uh, certainly it wasn't a question of the musical skills. I think it was about the diplomatic skills and the social skills to actually hang in there and uh, and, and 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 see the project through to, to fruition. And of course, the most bitter blow of all uh, was that, as I say, that that track doesn't make it onto the next album, which is produced by Jim Steinman, who is <laughs> probably the most blatant Phil Spector imitator ever. Um, 
uh, Simon Bridges, some of the some of the tracks on on, on the next Celine, Celine Dion album. So I think he was sort of um, you know doubly chagrined by that. Uh, another another unhappy episode. I, I hate to make his life sound so unhappy at, uh, at this point, but but it really is a it really is a catalogue of unhappiness, and, and particularly following the death of of, of Philip. He said he said a, a, a very powerful thing at that point. He said, "The most vulgar and obscene four-letter word in the language is dead." And that I think, if you think about those words and, and consider what that meant to him in the light of the death of his father, as you say, and of his son, uh, that gives you some sense of, of in how much despair Spectre was living for many, many years. Yeah, it's a tragic story. And let's hear one last song snippet. This is the Ramones. Do you remember rock and roll radio? Ramones, do you remember Rock and Roll Radio, which uh, was one of their only hits in England, a top ten hit? Um, and like you say, this period, you know, looking at the the whole of Phil Spector's life, he's he's got these moments of accomplishment, and he produces these songs that mean so much to millions of people. I mean, it's not just that he had hit songs, but he had hit songs that really impacted people's lives in a huge way. That you know, and his his influence impacted the history of music. I mean, you know, you talk about Phil Spector imitators and the seventies and eighties were filled with people making millions of dollars and, and reaching millions of people, you know, people like meatloaf and Bruce Springsteen, the Phil Spector sound never went away. And, and, you know, Phil and his castle in Pasadena is hearing this, uh, you know, sitting in the darkness and the gloom year after year. And he has one last gasp. He works with this British band star sailor and, there's a line that they they said that's just crushing. Tell us tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, they said he taught us a lot about uh, the way he used to work, and we taught him a lot about today. Um, it's ouch. <laughs> yes, ouch. I mean that 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 came about through his daughter Nicole, who who was a big Star Sailor fan. They were they were playing in Los Angeles, and she went to see the show. Uh, and afterwards, invited them back to, uh, to, to 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 the to the house where Phil was living. By now, he'd moved from Pasadena, and was living in the Pyrenees Castle in uh, in Alhambra. So uh, she invited them back to the back to the castle, uh, and of course, they were completely blown away to be in the presence of Phil Spector. And uh, again, he was once again Sherlock Holmes looking for a case, uh, and he offered to offered to produce them. I think I think perhaps he saw the fact they were English. Uh, perhaps you know it evoked some sort of rather nostalgic memories of the Beatles and the fact that he could bring something to them. Uh, and off he goes to London uh, and and produces a couple of tracks. And it and it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Uh, the band don't particularly like what he does. Uh, he doesn't find them as amenable and malleable uh, as, as he would hope. Uh, for young Englishmen would be, uh, and, and it, it just peters out into nothing, and, and, and he comes back. I think they used uh, they used at least one, maybe two tracks from those uh, from those sessions on an album. And what, whatever happened to Star 
by the way. They they they, they seem to vanish rather rather quickly. I didn't say that out of any sense of malice, but but uh, um, I'm not even sure if they're still going. Um, but but he came back from those sessions, and in fact, it was shortly after those sessions that that I had the opportunity to meet him. Uh, and in talking about what he'd been doing recently, he, he mentioned the fact of that he'd been working with Star Sailor. He didn't mention the fact that he'd been effectively fired from the project, uh, and 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 sort of rather gave the impression that there was more of that to come. And I may work with Coldplay, and I'm friends with Bono, and. Uh, you know, so he was he was striving to give the impression of somebody who was very much back in the game. Uh, but I think the truth of it was that he was very much out of the game. Uh, and of course, the events that unfolded, you know, uh, two or three weeks after I met him, uh, he, he was rendered out of the game permanently. Yeah, and I don't want to diminish, you know, the tragedy of, of the killing of Lena Clarkson. I mean, uh, you know, the loss of a human life is is a horrible thing, but it's sort of, out of outside the topic of this show. But one last point about Phil Spector that, that fascinated me is it seemed like there was an almost self-destructive pattern he was engaging in leading up to the death of Lana Clarkson, wherein he alienated himself from people like Janice Zavala and from his longtime bodyguard, so that he he had for years surrounded himself with a cocoon, created a cocoon that was enabled by these people that, that would take care of him and facilitate him, bodyguards who knew, you know, oh, Phil's got a woman in the house. I better make sure that she can get out when she wants to leave and that, that no yeah. shots are fired. But, you know, at the end he's very alone and he's the bodyguards in the car. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, do you think Phil was seeking to destroy himself? Oh, uh, God. I mean, I think if, if he was, it, would, it, it was at some deeply unconscious level. Um, I, and honestly, I don't think I don't think he I don't think he he did feel that. I, I think because he gave he led me to believe that at the time I met him, uh, he'd stopped drinking. He wasn't drinking. Uh, he was he was under psychiatric care or therapeutic care, uh, as he put it to me. Uh, I'm not schizophrenic, but I take medication for schizophrenia. Uh, by this point, you know, he had a workable diagnosis for the for the for the, the trouble that a horse. Throughout his life, uh, used to be called manic depressive, but you know he was bipolar, uh, and and he'd come to terms with that. And so he was taking medication. Um, he certainly wasn't drinking when I met him, which is to say, on the afternoon that I spent with him, he was drinking something red. The guy rather took to be cranberries, and it might have been blood, but but I think it was cranberries. <laughs> um, uh, but he wasn't drinking alcohol, and by all accounts, he wasn't drinking alcohol at that point. And, and as he said to me, uh, he, he, you know, he acknowledged the, the difficulties that he'd had, the mental difficulties, the problems that had assailed him through the years. But he said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a reasonable man. I'm trying to be a reasonable man. He had, he had everything to live for and everything to look forward to in a way. He idolized his daughter. She idolized him. Uh, he's some reasonably kind of stable state. I mean, his, his professional career... Might have might have been once again going into hiatus, but you know at that point he's what 60, 61 years of age, whatever whatever he was. Uh, I, you know, it, it, a lot of record producers retire long before their long before their 60, 61, and 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 he didn't have any financial problems to to, to to worry about. So I think he was, relatively speaking, I think he was in a in a pretty good place, and I think that's why he why he agreed to the interview that that I did with him. 
so he was just trying to be a reasonable man. And those were the words that, that echoed in my mind as, as I drove away from the, from the Pyrenees Castle that, 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 that evening. Um, but then I'm led to understand uh, shortly after that, uh, he, he went up to see a woman friend uh, and was driving himself and uh, came off the road and hit a fire hydrant and, and totaled the car, walked the rest of the way to the, to, the, to the house of the woman friend, and the first thing he said was, I need a drink. Uh, and he, later that night, he had to be helped out of the house uh, by his driver into a car and driven back. So he was, uh, he'd fallen off the wagon, and at the same time, he was still taking medication. And I think that was a, that was a pretty combustible sort of uh, combination, really. And I think that was a, a critical, critical factor in in the events of uh, of of, uh, of of December the December the the, the third, uh, whatever it was, but two thousand three. Yeah, two thousand two thousand two. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad uh, you brought that up because that that hitting the fire hydrant story is, is sort of the last little kick in the teeth that that breaks Phil Spector and 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 starts him drinking so. again. I think uh, so. I think so. Yeah, and that that night, I you don't don't want to dwell on this, but that night he was, you know, he he was out on the town like a, like a lost man. You know, he he had a dinner date with with an old friend, uh, took her home after the dinner date. Then he clearly feels he's still a little loose end, so he goes back to the restaurant, picks up a waitress there, takes her on to a couple of other places. They end up at the house of the blues. She, uh, she she's tired and wants to go. So he's angry at that, and so she goes, and so it's it's he's in the last last chance uh, saloon at this point in terms of companionship for the night. So he so he hits on Lana Clarkson, who was the VIP greeter, and persuades her to come back to, to come back to the house with him. And as she gets into the car, the the the, the first thing she says to the driver is, "This will be quick. It's only for one drink." And Spectre turned to her and said, "You don't talk to the driver." Um, and. Yeah. So I mean, it, it was it's, a very, very sad and terrible sort of uh, outcome. But it's it's an interesting question, really. To, to what degree does that does that sort of overshadow the legacy of of Bill's music? You know, can we still listen to Bill's music in the knowledge of what happened? I I can, and I and uh, I you know I, I'm able to make the separation in my mind between the whatever whatever crimes and misdemeanors the man may have committed and 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 the, and the legacy of the art that he left behind. And you talk about you talk about his music the, the incredible thing about his music is that it's 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 endured these weren't just hits for the moment they, these were hits that have endured for 20 30 40 50 years and that sound as incredible and as powerful and as impactful and as touching and as moving and as romantic and as elevating as they did at the time they were made yeah i mean he gave a lot to the world and and uh reaped some rewards and paid a heavy price and so mick thanks so much for coming on the show the author mick brown the book is tearing down the wall of sound the rise and fall of phil specter and, and i've read several phil specter biographies i have to say i think this is the definitive one thanks so much for chronicling uh this tragic tale of a very gifted thank artist you. and wretched person thank you Nathan. it's my pleasure talking to you it's been great mate. thank you Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. Nate will be back next week with Little Willie John biographer Susan Whitehall. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tearing Down the Wall of Sound, The Rise and Fall of Phil Spector is published by Vintage. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies, plus real-time product availability, and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.